Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This episode is presented by Matt Fulton and produced by Chris Carr. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Secrets and Spies. On today's episode, I'll be speaking with the global best-selling author Terry Hayes. Following a storied career as a journalist, Hollywood screenwriter, and film producer, his 2014 debut novel I Am Pilgrim was a revelation in the spy genre and sold millions of copies worldwide. Ten years later, Terry is back with a long-anticipated follow-up, The Year of the Locust. We talk about his creative inspirations, why the book took a decade to complete, and how contemporary spy fiction can take a page from epic fantasy and science fiction. While every bit is gritty, sweeping, and intricately plotted as I Am Pilgrim, The Year of the Locust's bold bending of conventions will surely make it one of the most talked-about thrillers of the year. As always, a couple of housekeeping notes first. If you enjoy the show, please leave a five-star rating and review on your podcast streaming app of choice. And if you're not already, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It's super easy. Just go to patreon.com forward slash secrets and spies. Your generosity helps keep this podcast going. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Terry Hayes, welcome to Secrets and Spies. It is wonderful to have you. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Well, thank you very, very much. Uh, yeah, it's it's great to be here. In, well, to be talking to everybody in Philadelphia. Yeah, I have actually been to Philadelphia uh, a couple of times, and that's so. It's terrific to connect with with you know with yourself and and with the, with a wider public. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm right outside Philadelphia. Our um, our audience though is it's about it's it's close to about 50-50 US and UK with a um strong representation from Australia is usually what our what our uh, audience is so you were uh, yeah you got some some bit of i don't know home field advantage i guess with your listeners yeah i i i have to be careful i don't tell too many lies about australia i'm <laughs> glad you thanks no, they're 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 great. They're some of our some of our best listeners that we have in Australia. So you've returned after a, a brief break following um, I Am Pilgrim uh, with a new epic doorstop of a novel, uh, The Year of the Locust. You've outdone yourself again, I think, and we'll get to that uh, in a second. I first wanted to turn the clock back a bit for anyone who's unfamiliar with your work. You're uh, Australian, which I'm sure by now listeners can tell. Uh, originally a journalist. <laughs> Um, you yeah. then had a successful career in Hollywood, writing uh, Mad Max 2, Dead Calm, and other films. Then in 2014, you published your first novel, I Am Pilgrim. Can you share the story behind your transition from screenwriter to spy novelist? What what motivated that shift? Well, my mother, who's no longer with us, my mother said, well, his problem is he can never hold a job. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know. Maybe there's some truth in that. I don't know. But, you know, I'd... Um, I'd been a migrant child. I was actually born in England, but I went to Australia when I was five. So obviously, you know, to me, Australia is home. And uh, so I was a migrant child. It was difficult circumstances. There were just the four of us, uh, just my brother, myself, mum and dad. There were no grandparents, no aunts and uncles, no cousins, no extended family in Australia. So we landed there and didn't know anybody. And uh, Australia, you know, when you go back decades, was... Uh, 
was a uh, unevolved place, you could say. It was, there were only 7 million Australians in an area of the land size of America. So, it, it, you know, a few and far between, and they had a certain sort of resilience and, uh, and, and a friendship, a mateship, very important in Australia. But, of course, yeah. for a kid from, a, from a, uh, an English, in the, uh, from a village in the south of England, it was very, very confronting and uh, very difficult. And my mother was not a well woman. She was not psychologically equipped for, for, for her life there. So it was a bit miserable. To be honest, more than a bit, but I read, I read all the time, and I escaped into stories. So you know, you're seven or eight years old, I don't know, and you go to the local library, and then you go to the local bookshop, and you look around, and there's thousands of books. You go to the Mitchell Library in Sydney, and there's hundreds of thousands of books. So you think to yourself, well, it can't be this hard. I mean, it, everybody's doing it. Well, at least there's millions of people that are doing it. So I thought, well, I might as well be a writer. It's good to have a, a, an objective in life. But, of course, I loved I loved reading. I loved storytelling. I, I loved big epic novels. You know, and as I grew older, I, I read and read and read, and it just got wound into my DNA. That was what I was going to do with my life. I, I had no doubt of it. There was never any other suggestion. No, no other thought ever entered my mind. I never wanted to be a, you know, a, a top-flight footballer or too short to be a basketballer. But lots of things. I, that never entered my mind. But, and uh, so, um, you know, when you're finishing up high school, you you go and see the careers guy and tell him what you want to do with your life and, he says, that's a good idea. Study hard and you can go to a really good university. Well, you don't go in there and say, I want to be a writer, not the sort of school I went to. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I said to him, I want to be a journalist. He said, oh, yeah. It's a very elite school I went to. It's not a, um, it's not a private school. It's a government school for kids who are supposed to be very promising. <laughs> they got that bit wrong. But anyway, I got <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I got there. I don't know how. They were a bureaucratic mistake. And, uh, you know, they go through at the school how many judges they've been, how many world-leading heart surgeons, how many great lawyers, how many this, how many that. So I said I want to be a journalist. <laughs> well, I thought, well, that's pretty grubby. <laughs> that's not, you know, really what we do here. But, mm -hmm. you know, it did, I didn't care. But before, because I went to that school, because I'd written articles for our school magazine, I got a job at Australia's most prestigious newspaper group, sort of like think of the, the New York Times of, of Australia. And um, so anyway, I sort of did okay. And uh, when I was 21, they, they sent me as a foreign correspondent to New York. And um, so I think to this day I'm the youngest foreign correspondent and Australian newspapers ever said. So that was pretty interesting, and I wrote some good stories, quite a bit about the CIA, funnily enough, and that mm -hmm. sparked real interest in, in, in that's sustained all through my life. So I did that, and then I got some prominence as a journalist. Film director came and sat in the office I was working in one day and uh, told me that he'd made a made a movie and he then told me he was a doctor and I thought who in their right mind gives up a good profession like being a doctor to make movies in Australia because nobody made movies in Australia the, the, the Australian new wave of cinema hadn't really taken off but anyway I liked him very much very personable incredibly you know I mean really really highly intelligent so we drove out to the Melbourne suburbs I was living in Melbourne at the time, and he showed me this movie on a 17-inch black-and-white TV set with whole scenes missing. Couldn't hear half the dialogue. And he's sitting next to me explaining to me what's going on. Anyway, at the end of it, he said, what do you think? And I said, mm, very interesting. <laughs> what else do you say? I couldn't understand it, you know, but I didn't want to say, wow, I think you should go back to medicine. And that uh, <laughs> and he said, uh, what do you, 
what do you think of that lead actor? I said, oh, just, I didn't know anything about acting. Maybe I still don't. Uh, and I, I said, well, he, he seemed very good to me. He said, yeah, yeah, I think he's going to be a movie star. I said, really? He said, yeah. And I said, well, he's certainly handsome and he's young. I said, I guess that helps. He said, yeah, oh, yeah, no, but he can really act. I said, okay. He said, his name's Mel Gibson. I said, oh, okay. Didn't mean anything to me. He could have said his name's, you know, Fred Flintstone. That would have meant yeah. more. And that, and the movie was Mad Max 1. And, of course, went on to have great success. The guy I was talking to was George Miller, who's won a couple of Academy Awards and uh, is, a, you know, a highly celebrated, one of the probably best directors of our generation. And I made a lot of movies with him. And uh, that became, you know, pretty good because I was writing, I was getting very well paid. I went to Hollywood, I made more movies. I had some extreme experiences. I saw the last of Hollywood Babylon before it became really corporate. I saw, you know, the drugs, the hookers, everything. I mean, I saw outrageous behaviour, really outrageous behaviour. It's a migrant kid from... From England, you know, I, I, when we landed in Australia, I looked like a Polish refugee in the Second World War, you know, and I'm driving, <laughs> I'm driving over to, you know, go and meet presidents of movie studios. So I thought, well, I did something sort of right. I met the woman who went on to become my wife and I worked in the movies until I didn't want to work in the movies anymore. I, I didn't like it. So I thought, well, might as well do what that five-year-old kid wanted to do. Might as well write a novel. I had finally, after many, many adventures and many distractions and uh, diversions, I lived my ambition. I yeah. I wrote up Pilgrim, and it, you know, it did okay. Yeah, that's that's putting it mildly. So you you mentioned you know being exposed to the secret world as uh, Lacare like to say um, as a as a foreign correspondent. Um, I was what what aside from that maybe if, if there's more what what led you to write in the spy genre? Are there any particular influences or or, or inspirations that shaped your uh, approach to it? Well, Lacare is a brilliant writer. Well, so unfortunately he's dead now, but um, yeah, a brilliant writer. Brilliant writer because he managed to combine a world of espionage where the stakes were very, very high with some really great literary writing and find thematic interests. Yeah, I mean, Lacare is really, in my view, everybody would have a different view and I'm no authority on this, but... To my, to my mind, it's really about the dissolution of the British Empire. Oh, and yeah. A group of men, because of nearly all men, because of the period he was writing, a group of men trying to cling to Britain's place in the world and some of them trying to conduct themselves with dignity. I mean, George Smiley is an incredible character and the, the sense of fatigue he captured that entire sense of fatigue about Britain itself and its withdrawal from the world stage, from being a well, not stage, but from being a world power and the consequences of that. There's a terrible melancholy to to you know his writing, and um, you know it comes, I think, from from himself, his own experiences within the espionage world, but also his own experiences as an Englishman because he never lived outside of England. As you know, his name's David Cornwell, and he he moved around England a fair amount. Well, not a fair amount, a, a small amount, I guess. But he was deeply, deeply... Um, intertwined with English life through that period. And, of course, his father was a confidence trickster. And and Locare knew that most spies, he knew one interesting thing about spies, and and I use this in Pilgrim, or this idea in Pilgrim, 
Most spies have secrets long before they work in the intelligence world. They, you know, when you're when you're a foreign agent and, or an intelligence agent and you're entering a, a, another country, the first thing you have to do is invent a legend. You have to invent a story about yourself. Akare <laughs> is watching his father invent all these damn stories in order to try to separate people from their money. And that his father presented himself as one way to the world, but was in fact a vastly different man. He'd already created a legend. He already had secrets deeply embedded that could not be revealed. The Kare's a smart guy. He goes to a very good school. He's recruited by British intelligence. He knew so much about that world before he ever even entered it because yeah. that was his bringing. And that is reflected in his writing. And so when I was a young man, I I, I used to set myself tasks, you know, because I'm psychologically unsound. Uh, and, you know, my children say that all the time. They say, well, you know, he's, he's unhinged. And, and you know, I'm probably <laughs> right. But I used to, during my teenage years, we have very, very long summer holidays and a summer vacation in Australia. It's over Christmas. So you finish school in sort of like early December and you don't go back till the beginning of February. So I'd set myself this task. I am going to read all the works of Hemingway this summer break. I'm going to read all the works of, I don't know, you know Tolstoy. I'm going to read all the works of D.H. Lawrence. Well, you know, anybody that can sort of spend their summer holidays reading D.H. Lawrence definitely needs mental help. But I did it. And that, and one of those that I set myself was, was John McCarrey's. You know, and a very, very, very fine writer. And it was exciting to read. When you've waded through War and Peace, and I really mean waded through it, I mean, Anna Karenna, that's a different book. That, mm. that, 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 that to me is probably the greatest novel ever written. But War and Peace was very important at the time because everybody had a great interest in, in Napoleon and the wars that have been fought. But to a kid in Australia, it's sort of, oh, yeah, sure. Uh, so I'd read a lot of stuff, which Herman Hesse, I read all the collected works of Herman Hesse. Well, my God, put a gun to your head. And that, so when I came to David Cornwell's work, it was very, very different. It was exciting to read. It was, you, you disappeared into it. It's like watching a really great movie. You can always tell when you walk out of a movie theatre and, and people are talking and say, oh, wasn't that shot fantastic? What about that tracking shot, you know, 10 or 12 minutes in? You know it's no good. You know the movie's no good. If you're sitting there watching tracking shots, you're not the drowning in the story. Lacare could make you drown in the story. Yeah. And, and, and it captures something of that period of that time in England that was very sad, very interesting. And George Smiley and a group of other men were showing enormous grace under pressure. And I, that's what I tried to do in Pilgrim. Nothing like Le Carre's writing. God forbid I, I should ever be compared to that. No, no, I, I think it's I think it's warranted. Oh, I thank you. Thank you. That's the <laughs> highest compliment anybody could ever give me. Um, <laughs> I, I tried to, to show some people having grace under pressure, showing real courage, and uh, in both novels, and um, because that's always interested me, and I think it interested Lucare. So, I, you know, I, I couldn't write like him, uh, uh, not not in the literary form. Uh, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm reasonable enough. I could mimic anybody. I could certainly mimic Hemingway, but that wouldn't be hard. And, and I could mimic J.D. Salinger, Catcher in the Rye. And I did for a few paragraphs just to amuse myself mm. in, uh, in Pilgrim. But I could not, 
I did not have the same influences as Lakara. I hadn't been in Berlin as an intelligence agent when, you know, the Iron Curtain had come down and everybody was struggling to, to make sense of what was happening in the world. I didn't have the experiences of, of a country that had lost an empire and was now flailing around on the world stage trying to find a role. I, I had none of those things. So I drew on my own experiences, but I did learn, keep it interesting, keep turning the page, try your very best, try to be a really good writer. And people have said to me before Pilgrim came out, well, how do you see yourself? What, how do you envisage yourself? I said, oh, it's pretty simple. Pretty simple. They said, oh, yeah, all right, what? I said, I'm going to be the J.R.R. Tolkien of the spy genre. <laughs> and they said, what? You're going to start doing, you know, have elves at the bottom of the garden? I said, no, it's going to be big. <laughs> it's going to be epic. We're going to go on this adventure and I'm not going to let you off the hook. Uh, just like Lord of the Rings, just like yeah. the Hobbit, you know. Yeah. And they, oh, God, you know. The guy's a genius, and uh, yeah. you know, and I'm not. But, but that was my ambition. So I'm somewhere between Tolkien and Lacare, with a lot of born identity thrown in. And I do think that the Day of the Jackal really changed the genre. Yeah, it brought to it a documentary realism that James Bond had never found. You know, so so yeah. You, you, you know, look, it says somewhere in, in in Locust, it says none of us ever escaped the mighty gravitational pull of our childhood. And that gravitational pull was really strong for me. Yeah. And I've never escaped it, and I never will. And I don't think my kids will, will escape the gravitational pull of their childhood. God knows what damage they've been done, you know, has been done to them me as a father but they are very happy to tell me every day all the things i got wrong that like every parent you know yeah no thank you for that pilgrim of course was fantastic uh it appeared on the best of 2014 list for the new york times uh the wall street journal and entertainment weekly to name a few uh selling five million copies worldwide uh that's not too shabby uh, did Pilgrim's uh, success influence your mindset or approach when sitting down to write this new one? To some extent. I didn't want mm -hmm. to write the sequel to Pilgrim because at that stage I never knew if Pilgrim would be a success. And I thought, my God, if I've got a sequel to a failure, this is not a good idea, you know. But also I was sick of um, of Scott Murdoch or whatever his name is. I don't even know what his real name is. Well, who knows? I mean, he, he, his childhood is so, so lost in, in the weeds, you know. I do have to write Pilgrim too. I've contracted to do that. That's my next book. So I'm going to damn well have to work out what we'd better call him, what his real name is. And uh, that, but I was sort of, he has no emotional attachments to anything in the world because of his background, because of his childhood, because of a highly intelligent man, I hope he is, but he is not attached to anything emotionally. I mean, as far as I can recall in the book, I think he admits to having sex with one woman. He's not exactly young, you know. Uh, he doesn't drink. He, he had had an interlude with drugs, but he'd overcome that. He doesn't smoke cigarettes. He doesn't go to the movies. He doesn't go dancing. Um, he doesn't go on vacation. He's he's miserable. You know, he's interesting, I think, to, to be in his company. But when you've spent years with this guy, writing about him and thinking about him and doing everything, you know, 24-7, you get a bit yeah. jaded with it. You're thinking, enough already, you know. So when it came time to do um, Locust, I wanted to do a denied access area spy, one of the guys that's really at the spearhead, who goes into the most forbidden areas. Now, there are women that do it, but I am not equipped to write that. So I choose this guy, and I give him a lot of emotional attachments. I give him a committed relationship with a woman who ends up being pregnant. I don't yes. want to give away too many spoilers, but he ends up he ends up with kids. 
he is part of an organization that is very bureaucratic, but, you know, there are relationships there. It's part of the CIA. Whereas in Pilgrim, the organization is part of was so shadowy that nobody had any relationships there. It was really secret. Well, he works for the CIA. I made one other really, really conscious decision. In Pilgrim, our hero is never really in jeopardy. He, it's an intellectual exercise in catching a terrorist, a ghost-like terrorist. There is a whole sequence in Pilgrim where he ends up in a boat storage facility in, in Bodrum in Turkey. There's crashing boats and huge cruisers falling from overhead jibs and he's running and leaping and doing God knows what, and it cost $50 million <laughs> to film. You could leave it out of you, you could leave it out of the book. You could, you, 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 there, there would have been a far more efficient way to get from point A to point B without going by that. But I put it in deliberately because I realized he wasn't in any jeopardy. I thought, my God, we better we better threaten his life somehow. So at least it was sort of inventive. Well, I made a conscious decision in Locust. Every few pages he was gonna be in jeopardy. Oh, my God. There's so many people lining up to kill him. He's dying of thirst in some desert in Iran. They've got him staked out in the water waiting for the tide to rise so that he drowns. He's shot through the foot. He's trying to break his wrist to escape from handcuffs. On and on and on it goes until I got to the point where I thought, oh, I don't think I'd do this anymore. This poor guy's never going to survive. And I'm exhausted by all of this, you know, anguish that he has to go through. So they were the two major decisions that I made to make it different, to, to go down very different avenues. And for me, you know, I can't say for the public at large, but for me, it was very rewarding. I liked the fact that his family got into very terrible danger. So he ended up fighting not only to prevent a cataclysmic event, mm -hmm. but he was fighting for his family. So, it, so it, it, it was good from that point of view. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back with more. I've struggled on how to to phrase this question because I think one of the I think it's it's better for 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 readers to go into Locust really not knowing a whole lot about it if that makes if that makes sense I think the little you know about it the better it goes however there's I'll say a turn a shift going into the third act that i mean you you mentioned tolkien being um an influence on you and I, I wanted to if we have time i wanted to get back to that a bit later you 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 mentioned how i guess injecting sort of different elements into this genre different that it, that isn't commonly done is in isn't is important to you and in this turn we'll say i don't really want to call it a twist but a a, a turn there's a lot of horror and and science fiction elements that come to the surface that I I've read a lot in this genre. I don't know that I've quite seen anything. I mean, apart from like Bond films or Fleming, I don't know that I've seen anything quite quite like that. I was wondering if you if in a I don't know, a way that 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 doesn't give away spoilers and stuff. Sure. Is there is there a way to talk yeah, about sure. that? That's basically what I wanted to ask you. It's very bold. Yeah. That's good. If you haven't read anything like it before, that's good. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Do you go on the journey with me? I don't know. The public will decide. Yeah. I, if you go on that leap, there's some very terrible things happen. And it all makes sense at the end. It all makes sense. You're always looking, I think, when you're writing, to find the emotion in things. I had a desire to go very extreme. 
and I had to, let's say, mix genres. <laughs> Novels, especially in the spy genre, can be pretty dusty things. They can be, um, they follow a formula often. Not always, but often. And people are familiar with that, and that, that's great. Movies, on the other hand, are far more narratively bold. Yeah. I walk in. I walk in to see movies that my kids are watching. I say, well, why do you do that? I say, oh, shut up, Dad. Just follow it. They're much more willing to take leaps and the audience goes with them. One of the unfortunate things about the publishing world is that people who read books are a lot older than, than the normal demographic. You've got to pick up younger people. I'm not saying 12-year-olds. I'm not saying chick lit, you know, or, or romance things. But you want people in their late teens and 20s to read it and say, wow, those people have learned narrative basically from movies. Yeah. And movies and TV series, especially on streaming, have become much more bold. If anybody's seen their first the first season of True Detective, True, uh, True Detective, I'd yes. love to talk to them because I can't understand half of it, but I knew it was good. I yeah. knew it was really good. They were always ahead of me. They were always doing something, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> but sort of got you there. Chris Nolan with Oppenheimer. Yeah. It's a story in a very unconventional way, really unconventional, and it held your interest. So I came from the movies uh, and I am conscious of these things. So I thought what we'll do is we'll go along, we'll try to set this up earlier with, with a number of things. I, I mean, Kane, the lead character, is, uh, it, it believes in a world of number of weight. He's a, he, he went to nuke school. He's got a science degree. He believes in a comprehensible, explainable world. Well, take that guy and show him some things that are very difficult to explain. His life is saved, and this is not giving a spoiler away, or I hope I'm not, but his life is saved in Iran because he's about to enter a canyon and he hears gunfire from the future. That's the only way he can describe it. Something's warning him. And, of course, he's right. Don't go into that canyon. He has a vision of the ruins of New York City, a place in total ruins. And he talks to his wife about it and he says, this is what I've seen. He says, I've seen death all around. And she says, yours. And he says, no, no, yours. So he's been warned by perhaps divine providence, perhaps by more divine, uh, a benign universe. I don't know. And that, and he, it's very confronting for him. Everybody thinks he's suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And he wonders about that. But then you get to a major turn in the book. I hope it's been set up. I hope that the reader goes with it. I hope they experience some things which are unusual in the spy novel. And I hope that they come out the other end of that sequence and say, oh, I get it. I get it. Yeah. This, is, he, this is a warning to him. This is telling him where he has to go. And he has to go into Russia. He has to go into what's called a Zato, uh, one of the highly forbidden zones of Russia. And there he has to fight somebody to the death. So it, it's an unusual thing to do. Yes, it's a dangerous thing to do. But, hey, if I'm not doing that, what am I doing? I'm not writing, I'm typing. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good way to... That's that's certainly a, a good way to do it. It's not um it's not safe by any means what you did, but it's um it it's new and it's and it's fresh and it's and it's interesting and as you said it's bold um and I think that's important especially in this genre that can feel a little stale at times frankly yeah yeah uh ten years between books is a pretty decent gap 
it's it's worth the wait. But uh, can you share any insights into why it took that long to complete? Any challenges or discoveries you encountered along the way? Yeah, yeah, it's not an easy topic to talk about, particularly. But I guess one of the primary things was I was two hundred pages into Pilgrim, as I mentioned before. There were just mm-hmm. four of us that went to Australia, so it was a very tight knit family. And, a lot of difficulties in the family, but okay. <laughs> That's most families, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was 200 pages into Pilgrim, uh, too far in to abandon it, not far enough in to see the end. You know, my brother, who's three years older than me, arrived at my house unannounced and uh, told me he had cancer. And, uh, oh, thank you. And uh, I, he talked to me about telling me what sort of cancer it was. I said, well, how, how long do they say? And he said, six months to a year. And uh, they were right at the low end. <laughs> they were right. So that was very difficult. Um, then a number of months after that, I had the, the duty, which I wouldn't wish on anybody, I can tell you, of standing in a hospital corridor in Sydney and discussing things with the doctors and uh, having to give my permission and authority to turn the life support machines off of my father. And uh, you know, it's one thing to lose a parent. It's another thing to, to be in those circumstances. Six months after that, my mother died. So <laughs> within the space of a year, I had lost all of my family. Now, you know, that happens. Uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not unique in that regard. Uh, yeah. I mean, live long, that happens to everybody. But they were the only three people who had shared with me that childhood dream. They were the only three people who knew that kid that wanted to be a writer and wanted to have a book that would be well-respected and sell well internationally. That had always been my aim. They knew of it. Not one of them lived to see it published. And uh, so when I finished Pilgrim, I I had a lot of things to process. I never had time to grieve any of them because I was too busy writing. I had to finish it. So I had to take quite an amount of time after I finished Pilgrim to Think about my life and, you know, I'm, my wife and I are fortunate, you know, the movies have been successful and that, and I, you know, I like working, but I, I probably don't have a, the necessity that a lot of people do have. But so I had to think about my family. I had to think about my place in the world. I had to think about, you know, immortality, death and lots of other, you know, heavy lifting. And that, then I had... Four children under the age of six when they were, you know, there, there was a stage, but that, that they were really quite young then. And the death of my own family influenced me greatly in regard to how I wanted to bring my own kids up and what I owed them. As I mentioned, uh, things were psychologically not the greatest in my own family, and uh, I didn't want to go down that route with my own kids. So I devoted an enormous amount of time to them. I devoted quite a lot amount of time to, to myself. And I like to think, I don't know, time will tell and the kids will tell a different story, but I like to think that I was a good father. Uh, I didn't miss a cricket practice session. I didn't miss a cricket match. I watched the four of them ride horses. One of them was training to 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 become a member of the Australian Olympic team, she hopes. Uh, so, oh, you know, it was all all important. They went to golf lessons. They went to drama lessons. They went down well everywhere. And uh, they learned French. They learned Chinese. We had private tutors at home teaching them all this stuff. So I spent a lot of time with them. And I did realise, as most parents do, you never get that time back. It never repeats. You either you do it then or you don't do it at all. I saw more performances of Aladdin than any person should ever have to endure. And, uh, and I don't regret one of them. So 
the kids are, you know, a creation of my wife and myself, just like Pilgrim is, just like Locust. But I yep. gave them more attention than I gave either of the novels, and and I'm I'm proud of that. I, I I'm not particularly proud of the novels. I did the best I could, but I'm proud. <laughs> you, I, I, yeah, I I'm proud of what I what I did with the kids, and so that took a lot of time. And finally, I found a story I wanted to tell, so yep. I sat down and told it. You know, yeah. Well, that's that. That's good. I think it's definitely, um, yeah. I think you're worthy to be proud of 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 all of that, um, for sure. Um, so you you mentioned Tolkien uh, earlier. Um, one of the things that I love about Pilgrim and now Locus is that they're huge, massive tomes. Um, they're uh, literate and intricately plotted uh, with a deep bench of characters, um, and you so clearly empathize with them, even your villains. Um, the, the narrative has a sense of grandeur and weight. And, and frankly, I think that's rare in this genre, um, anymore. Uh, listeners to this podcast have heard me comment along this lines often. I miss that. I miss the sprawling geopolitical thrillers that Clancy did in the eighties and nineties. You know, nowadays it's, um, it's 300 to 400 pages, pencils down, repeat the next summer. Um, and the next, I mentioned before we started recording how, you know, I Am Pilgrim was a big creative shot in the arm for me with my own novel, which I self-published because it's the same size as this. And I knew a kid who had done nothing else. There's there's no way, you know, I didn't even bother trying to to query it. But you you did it. You know, you broke those rules to tremendous commercial and and critical success. And that's like I told David, your publicist, that's why I wanted to speak with you. So all that wind up for this question, uh, do you see a specific importance in telling epic, expansive stories uh, within the genre? And if so, what do you believe a longer narrative offers that shorter works might miss? Yeah, yeah, it's very important. Um, you know, ultimately, um, we read books, we mostly, we hope, that are written by fairly literate and fairly intelligent people who manage to take you on a journey emotionally into places you've never been. Uh, you know, most of us don't lose family members, you know, in very violent situations because you're a spy or whatever. You go down this emotional track, but you also go down a, through a landscape that is probably very alien to you, uh, you know, whether it's Iran, Afghanistan, Russia, Korea, sure. wherever, Yemen, Gaza, wherever you like, you do that. You have to travel with characters who you're wedded to, who you believe in. And somebody like me has to keep it entertaining and interesting so you turn the page. You know, people say, oh, the books are so long. Yeah, sure. I've read books that are 100 pages long that are the most tedious things I've ever read. It, yeah. it, it, it's like wading through, you know, Marshmallow. Um, I've read books of 800 pages, you know, Shogun, James Clavell, let's say, 800 to 1,000 pages. felt like one night that it took you to read it because he was a master storyteller. And that, so the length doesn't matter to me. It, it, it you know, uh, Mark Twain read the Mormon Bible, you know, the book of their faith. And afterwards, he was asked what it was like. He said, well, it's chloroform in print. It's going to put you to sleep. <laughs> now, I don't want anybody to say, oh, that Terry Hayes, uh, chloroform in print. No. 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 Oh. So it's not the length that matters. It's how interesting it is. And one of the tricks to that, in my view, is to show people, tell people about things that they have no experience of or no knowledge of. I mean, we go to a place called Baku, capital of Azerbaijan, and we go there and there's some extraordinary things about that city. It was once the wealthiest city in the world, mm -hmm. you know, before around the First World War, just in that period. It was the wealthiest city in the world. Who knows that? Not many people. So you try to keep it interesting. You try to go on the emotional journey. You 
hope that people will come out and say, I never knew that. And you hope that they argue about it. We were talking earlier about there, there being a, a turn in the narrative. I've heard from a lot of people they loved it. I've heard from a lot of people they didn't like it. Good. Argue. Go on Goodreads. Go on Amazon and have an argument about it. At least you're alive. I mean, how many are you more than me? You, you've read books that you think, why bother? Why bother writing it? Why bother reading it? Because it's small and it's very conventional and it's very, very derivative of other books. I'm sick to death of reading books within this genre where within five pages you know that the bad guy is not just an intelligence agent but has all the attributes of an axe murderer. And you, you think, oh, yeah, all right, here we go. And now it's going to be some incredibly violent denouement to all of this, and we know who's going to win, and we haven't yeah. learned anything along the way. Well, that's yeah. fine. If people make a living doing that, then that's great. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do something different. So I wrote big, epic, sprawling novels that I hope get you to turn the page. If you don't turn the page, then I failed. But I did try. And, and you know, my ambition was not the problem. Maybe the skill was the problem, but the ambition was never the problem. I'm not so sure about that. Uh, I mean, if you, if you look at it, I guess, in, in terms of film, you know, um, uh, you know, people moan about the length of like Oppenheimer or Killers of the Flower Moon this year. That's, you know, over three hours long. But I always think, you know, if 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 it's written well, if it's edited well, you wouldn't you shouldn't be able to tell how long it is. And that's true of novels. Yeah, absolutely. Lawrence of Arabia, had, maybe a lot of movies back in that period, had intermissions because you had to go to the bathroom. Like it's so well, that is true. Yes. Yeah, you know, so it's not the length of anything, whether it's movies, novels, thematic albums by great bands. It's not the length. It's whether it's interesting. I yeah. mean, look, you, you can go and see Leonardo da Vinci's fresco of The Last Supper. You, you go to a sort of a, a religious place in, in Italy, you know, an abbey or something, and there it is on the wall. And it's long. It's big. Now, it's got all the disciples. It's got Judas. It's, I think there's a dog in it. I can't remember. But there's everybody there, and there's food, and it's a table, and it's The Last Supper. It's very long. And Leonardo da Vinci need not have done that. He could have just had Judas, who's going to betray Jesus. He'd say, yeah, Jesus, Judas there. You leave the dog out, leave all the food out, and you'd have a couple of the star disciples, you know, maybe John, maybe Mark. And there you've got it. It's the story. Yeah. And he wouldn't have called it the Last Supper. He would have called it Coffee with Jesus, and it would have been very small. And it would have been fine. I guess he didn't want to do that. I mean, Michelangelo didn't have to make David so big. He could have made him as a little pocket person. They could have sold him in the gift shop and everybody could have taken one home. But I guess he thought it's going to be big. <laughs> she thought it's going to be the last supper and everything's going to be in it. What would you rather have? Coffee with Jesus or the last supper? Well, I'm going for the last supper. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Yeah. How how do you perceive your contribution to, to spy fiction? Uh, how how would you like your works to be perceived? Oh, some people have been very generous, you know. People are nice. Not not everybody. There's plenty of people that will go Critics out there. Yeah. So you're, what an idiot. What a moron. Okay. But what they, look, what they don't understand is I got, I got four kids at home that tell me that every day. So what? <laughs> And I like them, and, and I actually respect their judgment. Yeah. So that doesn't have much effect on me. But some of the nice people have said, you know, that it's Freddie Forsyth, it's Robert Ludlum, it's a bit like there's some Tom Clancy elements. There's a Jean Le Carre feeling to some of it. That that's the pantheon, in my view. You know. Uh, I've been elevated to 
to a status which is sort of breathtaking. That's how I'd like to be remembered. Now, none of us know, do we? <laughs> I mean, you know, Pilgrim 10 years on and it sells very, very well. Yeah. It sells, uh, uh, you know, it continues to sell. It finds an audience. I mean, last year in Britain, uh, in Britain it sold 27,000 copies, which is no small feat for a book in its first year of release. Yeah. So it keeps finding an audience and people seem to hold it affection will that sustain i don't know i can tell you this if there's a smallpox epidemic launched by a terrorist which i frankly think there will be one day everybody's going to say my god that terry hayes was brilliant um but that's got nothing to do with me you know i, I that's not within my control so so that's how i'd like to be remembered i i, I would like people to say he he gave it his best shot. He and I think that about myself. I couldn't have done it any better. I may not have the talent. I may not have the reach. I may not have that way of thinking that that is totally necessary. I don't know. But I do know one thing. I didn't leave anything out there. I gave it my heart. I gave it my time. I gave it my emotions, my energy. I did everything I possibly could to say at the end of it, yeah, you, you, you did you did your best job. So that's enough for well, me. Terry, I don't want to give listeners that you're uh I, I don't want to give listeners the the impression that you're riding off into the sunset because you're 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 definitely not. Um I understand you uh are um working hard or, or beginning to work hard on uh, a sequel to I Am Pilgrim. Um, and there's a, a film yeah, adaptation yeah. of Pilgrim that's been in the works for for a while. Anything you can tell us about those projects? Yeah, well, uh, I Am Pil uh, Pilgrim 2, which is tentatively called Pilgrim Nightfall, okay. very dark. He ends up with a relationship, which doesn't go well. Um, it's got a fantastic opening sequence. I know what the first line is and I know what the last line is because I know that about every book I write before I start. I can't tell you what they are. Sure. But because I, I may change my yes. life. <laughs> and that, so very, um, so I'm excited by very excited by by, by doing the novel. I, I now spend a lot of time with Kane and his family and I'm sick of him. So I'm very happy to go back to misanthropic, unattached, emotionally... <laughs> an emotional void with my friend, you know, Pilgrim. Um, as far as film is concerned, yes, it's going to be made. It will be made. It's been very complicated because it was sold to MGM and they've been through three or four managements since I sold it. It's now owned by Amazon. So either they will make it or the rights revert to me and we will sell it to somebody else that will make it. So there's no doubt. I have no doubt in my own mind it will be made. It's just a matter of timing, but that's Hollywood. I mean, I, I've been, you know, in that place for many yeah, years. And I, I know how how tough it is. And it's not a cheap movie, but it will be made. The, the story will guarantee that. And there's a huge market for a spy franchise. Uh, my friend Paul Greengrass, you know, uh, with the Bourne, the Bourne movies and that, he, he, is, he, he made sure of that. So, yeah. Uh, it, it'll be May. The uh, Pilgrim 2 will be whatever it will be. Uh, I hope it's good. I, I feel a lot of pressure because people hold it in high regard. And whenever I go anywhere and people find out what I do, they, uh, you know, they tell me that they liked it. Maybe they're telling the truth. I hope so. But it, it puts a lot of weight on my shoulders, you know. But Sooner or later, you know, you just sit in the room and you dig ditch. That's yeah. what it is. You know, you start and you just keep digging. Is there a timeline for Pilgrim 2? Yeah, yeah. The publishers have a timeline. Okay. Yeah, two years. Two years. Okay. I don't have a time. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have They a have a timeline, not you. Yeah. All right. They have a timeline, but they're not writing it. I am. Yeah. Sure. Um, anything else you'd like to cover before we wrap for today? It's been a shock to me that the the way that people have reacted to Pilgrim. I'm not just saying this. I, I mean, it was a real surprise. I'd go to bed every night. My, my wife would wait up for me and uh, she'd say, how, how'd it go? And I'd say, oh, 
not so good because it's never good. But a few times I'd say, oh, really good day, a really good few pages. I'm really excited by that. But mostly uh, I was of the opinion that it was the worst decision I'd ever made to write this huge, sprawling novel. Couldn't I write something like a couple of hundred pages? And I really did not know. I really genuinely didn't know. And my wife would say to me, because she'd be reading pages, you know, sections as I went through, she'd say, you know, it's really good. It's really good. She reads a lot. But, you know, she's my wife. I, I mean, what else is she going to say? Yeah. So I had, I had no idea. And she didn't either. We got so close to it. So when it, you know, had some success and was, you know, on, on a number of lists and was well-reviewed, it really, it really shocked me. Uh, you know, I, I, I was very taken aback, but extraordinarily grateful. I mean, sooner or later, you live or die on the readers. There's no other way for it. I'm a storyteller. We light the campfire and you hope that there's a lot of people there. When you look out and there's only two people left and both of them are asleep, that's not good. But when there's you start with 500 people and they're all yelling out the back of the cave hey come and listen to this you've got to hear this yeah that's fantastic for a story yeah that is really fantastic i'll take that any day over the pulitzer or the booker absolutely Uh, yeah yeah you know to me and i can't exist in what with what i do without the public without the readers without them having their opinions, good, bad, or indifferent, that that's the, that's the contract between us. And so I, the only thing I can say is that I'm eternally grateful. I'm grateful to the people that picked the book up. I'm grateful to the people that read it and enjoyed it. I'm grateful to the people who pointed out all of my mistakes and I will do better next time. Um, and... You know, we're involved in that world. Yeah. People say to me, yeah, what's the worst book you've ever read? In my heart, my deepest heart, there are no bad books because I have undying admiration for anybody that wrote the first words and then got to write the end. I have, that is, I know that journey. And for somebody to do that is remarkable. They may not be books that I enjoy. They may not be books that interest me. They may not be books that I think are, from my perspective, well-written because I wouldn't have written them that way. But that is a real achievement. And I've had the opportunity to do it. So what have I got to complain about? Nothing. I'm blessed. And I'm blessed because I've made that connection with readers all around the world. Yeah. Thank you to them. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great place to, to leave it for today, Terry. Um, the book is the year of the locust. Uh, it's already been out for a little while in the UK and Australia. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Yes. Okay. But it releases in the U S on February 6th, uh, everywhere fine books are sold. Um, do go get it as soon as you can. Links will be in the show notes. Terry Hayes, thank you so much for joining us. It was a privilege speaking with you. Well, it's been fun. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for all the research and <laughs> knowing stuff about me that probably better not know. But thank <laughs> you. And yeah, thank you to everybody for listening. I, I hope you're still awake. Sure. No, I'm, I'm sure they are. There better be, especially if they're driving or operating heavy machinery. I hope they are. <laughs> <laughs> for listening. 
This is Secrets and Spies. <laughs>